me just say welcome again, whether you're online or whether you're in the room, we're glad to have you, privileged to have you. We're in the middle of a series called Guaranteed, and uh, just this very series says something to me about the nature of uh, Pastor Garrett and his leadership of our ministry. This is still January, a lot of people are, are thinking about their New Year's resolutions and whether they're still maintaining them or whether they could get back to them if, if they've slipped away. And uh, we know how hard that is to keep promises that we make even to ourselves. But this is not about us. This is about things that are guaranteed. These are about promises that God makes. And God is perfect in keeping his promises. So rather than focus on our failure, let's focus on what God wants to do about our failure in this series. It's just a, a perfect series. Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all the assembled hearts... Uh, prove to be faithful to you, that you might be raised up, that people might be encouraged, and that the church might be strengthened. We pray in Christ. Amen. Well, the series is about six different unbreakable promises of God, and we're in our fifth week. If you have not heard some of the past messages, let me just assure you that they're archived on our website, and you can go back and, and replay them. They're all worthy of your time. The first was, I love you no matter what. And that's not our experience typically in life. You know, uh, people's love is typically conditional. But God's love is unconditional. No matter how we have failed him, uh, the Bible says, for his own namesake, you know, he does these things. Just because of who he is, not because of who you are. I will not waste your struggles. All of us have been through struggles. Uh, in, in that week, we found out how our struggles are actually a blessing, and God uses our struggles. He allows us to struggle because through that we are strengthened. You are not your past. Man, all of us have regrets. You know, we kick ourselves about things that we could have done differently or mistakes that we've made, and, and we feel like we've been tarnished and that we can never have the same potential that we had before. You need to hear that message. Or last week, Pastor Dion did, I will provide all you need. And typically we think material things, but he reminded us that's not all you really need. You need also purpose. You need also relationships. Next week we're going to be talking about um, you will live forever. And that's not just about a pie in the sky, someday, forever and ever, amen. That's beginning today. We'll talk more about that next week. And today it's not all on you. Uh, the promise that uh, the Lord will walk through this with us in Life, And we're going to get to Matthew chapter 11 in just a moment. When I look about these promises, the one thing that uh, puzzles me, the problem that I have with the promises that God makes is that uh, they're often counterintuitive. They're illogical. They are not rational. And so when I think about them from an educated, rational point of view, I struggle with them. And I suppose you do too. But just because something's illogical and unreasonable doesn't mean it's not true. I think about that when I, when I see a monarch butterfly. I'm, I'm fascinated by that animal as well as so many others. The fact that they migrate. I mean, what was in God's mind that a butterfly would migrate? I mean, what's the point? But they do. They migrate to the south and, and they return. But that generation doesn't return. They're not, they're not strong enough to return. Uh, the next generation returns to the place from which they came. How is that possible? It's beyond my ability. It's unreasonable to think. It's illogical, and yet it's true. Or that a, a fish can be born on a certain sandbar 
in a certain stream miles from the ocean, find its way to the ocean, swim in the ocean if it survives for several years, find the same mouth in the same stream, work its way back up to the same bed and lay its eggs and hatch the next generation. You think that's reasonable? That's illogical. And yet God has fashioned these things to wow us. Or that a snowflake, no two snowflakes are exactly the same. I don't know how you would study them, but uh, I think that's been determined. Or even uh, that tornadoes, and I've seen pictures of this, where a tornado with such force can drive a piece of grass or a straw through a telephone pole. How can that happen? And yet it's scientifically proved that it has happened. So when it comes to the promises of God being illogical, I don't question that everything illogical is not necessarily true. It's just hard for me as a rational person to accept that it's true unless I experience it. And those are the promises of God. Give and you will receive. Really? Give and I will be depleted. You know, my kids get in my wallet and I get in my wallet later. There's no money there. You know, it hasn't replenished itself. But yet Jesus himself promised good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, even pouring into your lap. For according to the measure you use, so it will be measured back to you. It's a promise of God. And I've found it to be true, but so many people think that's illogical. That's just a trick that Christian pastors preach in order to get people to give more money. Or God causes all things to work together for good. Really? Everything? I mean, there's just some awful things that happen in this world. You know, some tremendous losses and sacrifices, things that are just evil. And God can use those for good? The rest of the passage needs to be studied to those who love him and those who act in response according to his purpose. You know, God can use even the awful things of this world to bring blessing to others and even to those who experience them. Or if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Feed him. (laughs) Keep your distance from him. Be kind to your enemy. The Bible says, for in so doing, you will heap coals upon his head. In so doing, you're just going to encourage bad behavior, seems to me. It's not logical, it's unreasonable, and yet the Bible promises it. And this one was a favorite of my grandma. Cast your bread upon the waters, and after many days, it will return to you. You know, it's kind of Christian karma, I think. You know, what goes around comes around. And he just promises that. You know, your behavior, uh, you should not let somebody else's behavior control yours. Your own behavior should be uh, from your motives. And just watch what God does with that. And expect good things to come from that. Or seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and he's going to take care of everything else. Well, that seems a bit far-fetched, but that's what God promises. If you struggle with these things, it's actually a compliment to you. It means you're a reasonable person. It means you're rational. It means you're educated. You're intelligent. In fact, people who believe these things, Christian people who believe these things, are said in the Bible to be the peculiar people. You know, it's always interesting to me that, that Christians think that non-believers are peculiar or odd. We're the odd ones, okay? Just own that, you know? The Bible says, in fact, uh, we are the foolish people. We accept foolish things. And he has used foolish things to shame the wise. And he has used weak things to shame, to shame those who are strong. And, and so we just have to own that, that we are the fools, we are the peculiar people, everybody else is just acting normally 
with the way they perceive the world to work. Today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11 where he makes two uh, additional unreasonable promises. I want to read it with you and you can look in your Bible or you can watch on the screen. Uh, But let me warn you, first it begins with an insult. Reading from Matthew chapter 11 verse 25. At that time Jesus said, I praise you Father, Lord of heaven and earth, the guy in charge. The guy who established the social systems upon which we live. The guy who designed certain things to be the way they are. Lord of heaven and earth. Because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. You know, so if you're an educated person, if you're wise and learned, I'm telling you in advance, this might be kind of hard for you to believe. Seems a little simplistic, a little pie in the sky. Probably not true. He's hidden these things from folks who are sharp. But he's revealed them to those of us who are willing to admit that we are like children, that we have childlike, simplistic attitudes about life. And we believe whatever God teaches. And so there's the insult. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. It's kind of how you do things, you know, uh, illogical, unreasonable, and yet true. All things have been committed to me by my Father. I'm not teaching you something new. Old Testament, New Testament, the nature of God is revealed in Jesus. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one can know the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So in Jesus, we don't only see our Savior and our salvation, we get a glimpse into the attitudes, the values, and the ways in which God works. So it's important to uh, study the stories about Jesus and his interaction with people. And this is, these are the two promises, the two unreasonable promises that Jesus makes in this text. He says, come to me, who? All. All who are weary and burdened. Show of hands. <laughs> you know, I, I get tired. I get weary of it all. And, and I'm still burdened. So he's inviting me. He's inviting you. He's inviting believers. He's inviting people who are just skeptical. He's inviting people who, who think it's a bunch of hooey. He's inviting all of us to come to him if we're weary and burdened. And he's promising to give us rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So I'm going to give you rest that I want you to learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So two promises. If you're uh, weary and burdened, come and he's going to give you rest. And secondly, take his way, his yoke, his approach to life on you. and, And you will find that it's much easier than the way you've chosen to live up till now. Those are the two promises he makes. First of all, he promises us rest. Come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. A little simplistic to believe that, you know, my weariness and my burdens will be erased if I come to Jesus. Just accept Jesus and life will be great. I'm not believing it. I'm not believing it if I'm not a Christian. I'm questioning it even if I am a Christian because I've been a Christian all my life. I was raised in this faith. And uh, I'm about as faithful as a person, a sinful person can get. You know, I go to church every week, uh, whether I'm here or whether I'm elsewhere. And if I'm traveling, I'll, I'll often live stream like so many are today. 
You know, I, I not only go to church, I practice my faith. I'm involved in a men's Bible study. I teach the faith. You know, I volunteer, I contribute. You know, I'm all in, and yet I have stress. And yet I get weary. And yet I feel burdened. My car can still be a problem. My kids can still be a constant worry. Our jobs can still be a pressure cooker. You come to him and your health issues don't necessarily automatically go away. Your relationships are just as difficult as they ever were. So what are we doing wrong? He says, come to me. Hey, I've come. I'm all in. And yet I feel still, feel weary and and burdened. What am I doing wrong? Well, the rest that Jesus is offering here is not an absence to struggle or an end to sacrifice. I think you have to know what God is promising and what God is not promising. In, In fact, the more faithful you are, it could be the more you're asked to do. It could be the, the greater burden that you're asked to carry. You remember um, James and John who were very close to Jesus uh, as he walked this earth and two of his closest disciples, part of his inner circle. Uh, one time their mother said that, hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, when, when you finally ascend to the authority that I know that you will ascend and receive, grant that my two sons, faithful to you always, will sit at your right and your left. Jesus turned to her and said, or turned to them and said, are you willing to drink from the cup that I drink? They said, we are. And he said, and you will. But those positions of honor are not for me to give. The Father will grant those. Jesus implies that to be faithful to him means that you're going to pick up your cross, that you're going to suffer, that you're going to sacrifice, and you're going to be burdened So this idea of coming to him and finding rest, finding an absence of struggle, an absence of sacrifice is not taught in the Bible. In fact, in James chapter 5, when the Bible wants to give an example of of how we should be patient in in affliction, he says, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, consider the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Did they find a state of rest, the absence of struggle, the absence of sacrifice? No. No. Just the opposite. So what does Jesus mean? In fact, in the chapter that is the, uh, considered the chapter of the heroes of the faith, this is what the Bible uh, says about those who are faithful. It says, uh, some faced torture rather than receive their release because they looked forward to a better day. Some were flogged. Others were chained or put into prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two, Isaiah. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute. They were persecuted. They were mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Does that sound like rest to you? So if Jesus isn't promising an end to struggle or an end to sacrifice, what is he promising? Well, the Greek word for rest, come to me and I will give you rest, is kata pao. Kata means again and pao means pause. He's not promising an end to your struggle and into your burdens. He's just promising renewal. He's promising refreshment. I don't, I don't know if you've done this, but I've done it more times than I care to, to recall where you chopped out a stump of a tree. Have you done that? 
You know, after a while, you just got to step out of the hole and say, somebody else get in there. You know, I got, I got to take a breather. I got to take a rest. You know, and then after you rest a bit, you have the energy to get back in and, 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 and you're eager to take a whack again. Or maybe you've dug a trench or, or chopped a cord of wood. You know, you just need a respite for a moment. That's what the Lord is promising here. He's not promising an end to the struggle. He's just promising renewal for the struggle. It's a kind of an Isaiah 40 promise. And I love, I love this uh, chapter from Isaiah. He promises strength to the weary. He doesn't say you won't be weary. He just promises strength for your weariness. He promises to help you rise above your weariness and increases the power of the weak. A renewal, a refreshment. Because even youth grow tired. He's not saying you won't get tired. He's not saying you won't get weary. And young men stumble and they fall. But those who hope in the Lord, and the Hebrew word is actually those who wait on the Lord, or those who take a moment and renew uh, their relationship with the Lord, also renew their strength. They will soar above their problems like an eagle. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So he promises that we will rise above these conditions. Let me tell you a true story. And it's a true story about a lady named Ann Flint. She wasn't born Ann Flint. She was born Johnson. She was born to Eldon and Jean Johnson the year after the Civil War. In fact, she was a a Christmas Eve baby born in 1866. Her daddy came back from the war and, and she was a baby boomer from the Civil War. After he came back, they had this child as they renewed their relationship, and she was born within the year. Uh, But her dad was still suffering from the wounds of the war, the malnutrition that so many soldiers felt. His health was not good. He was not going to live long. And her mother died two years later, giving birth to her younger sister. She doesn't even remember her mom. And her dad, realizing his health was weak and that he would not live long, uh, left her with a buddy who had died in the war, his widow who was raising two children already. So this widow who had no means of support, her husband dead as well, assumed responsibility for this man's children as well. It was not a good situation. She couldn't provide. And and the children were nearly abused until a school teacher who was living with a wealthy family in the area noticed them and her heart went out to them. And so she encouraged the Flints to adopt these two girls and they did. And so they were brought into a a well-to-do home that was also a Christian home. But these people were older and they would not live long. Uh, by the time Anne finished high school, uh, both of her adoptive parents had died. So she was now twice an orphan. But at least she'd gotten through high school. And then she took a year of normal school. And that's all that was required to teach grade school. So she got a three-year contract. And she thought, I'll be okay. I can provide for myself. I can provide for my baby sister. But then she developed arthritis in her hands so bad that she couldn't even complete a three-year contract. And she lived the rest of her adult life as an invalid uh, in a wheelchair. This was during an age of huge revival in America after the Civil War. Uh, Huge tabernacles were built, cities closed down as they came to hear men of God try to explain and put life back together from a Christian perspective. And she was a part of all that. She wrote a lot of Christian verse and she was often published uh, as offering hope and encouragement to people who had lost a lot. And she had a voice for it because she had lost a lot. And even now, she was suffering. The only picture I've ever seen of her uh, was her in a wheelchair. And yet, one of the most poignant poems that she ever wrote was based on this exact verse. I didn't know that. I've known the poem for a while, but I didn't know it was based on this verse. 
And it became such a strength to her in her life. The poem is called What God Hath Promised. And here's how it goes. God hath not promised. Skies always blue. Flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised. Sun without rain. Joy without sorrow. Peace without pain. She knew this to be true. God hath not promised, we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He hath not told us that we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. God hath not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel, needing no God. Never a mountain, rocky and steep, never a river, turbid and deep. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest from the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. That kind of rest, renewal, strength for the task that he has given us to engage, a task that we willingly engage, a task that makes us stronger, not weaker, Because he gives us another promise in this verse. The other promise, a better way, an easier path. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take his yoke on you. In the Old Testament, uh, the idea of yoking animals was was common. And it's it's, it's a usual metaphor in the scripture. On the left of the center screen, if you're uh, watching online, I hope you can see it. it. On the left are two oxen yoked together in these wooden yokes. And there's an interesting thing about yokes. When when two animals of a like nature are yoked together, uh, if one ox can pull a ton, you would think two ox yoked together could pull two tons. But in fact, there's a a miracle that happens when animals are yoked together. Uh, They can do more than they can do. It's not just an addition of their strength. It's a multiplication of their strength. If two animals are yoked together, each can pull a ton, they can end up pulling together three tons or even four tons. It's just kind of a thing that God created. If you're yoked to the right animal. If you're yoked to the wrong animal, though, in fact, Deuteronomy chapter 22 actually uses, it's interesting, this guy took a picture. Uh, It actually urges us in Deuteronomy 22, or it urged the people of that day, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. These animals are not meant to be yoked together. In, in fact, they will not add their strength, they will diminish their strength. Their stride is different, their nature is different, their character is different, their size is different, everything's different about them. You know, the donkey will increase the stress of the ox, the ox will increase the stress of the donkey, it won't turn out well. The Bible says don't do it. Now in the Old Testament, he uses this metaphor by saying don't yoke yourself to foreigners. You know, you don't have their attitudes, you don't have their values. And don't yoke yourself to false gods. You know, that isn't going to work well for you. And, and, and so today, he says, yoke yourself to me. If you want additional strength to face your struggle, yoke yourself to me. You'll find I'm gentle and humble of heart. In fact, the Bible gives us the same warning in the New Testament, not Old Testament, New Testament. It says, don't yoke yourself with unbelievers. Don't yoke yourself to the values of this world. 
You know, you're not meant for that. As Christian people, you're not meant to uh, live in that world and then occasionally come here. You're meant to bring this world into your life. Don't be yoked with unbelievers. Don't assume their values for you. For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, I know that when you think about yoking yourself, especially if you're a reasonable, educated person, and this seems unreasonable to you, I I know when you think about yoking yourself to the church, it's not asking you to yoke yourself to the church. It's asking you to yoke yourself to Jesus. It's not asking you to yoke yourself to a religion. It's asking you to yoke yourself to a relationship. But I think from the outside looking in, and I I know enough people uh, who aren't yet of the faith that I can say this, you know, some veracity that they see religion as do's and don'ts and they aren't ready to give up their freedom yet and so they're not going to be all in they're not going to they're not going to commit themselves uh, to a faith that will require certain behaviors of them but Jesus spoke against those who taught faith as behavior against legalists who said you know you should be faithful doing this and doing that you should follow these customs these traditions not so Jesus says, my way is not about rules. It's not about stepping on a line and getting whacked from God. My way is gentle. My spirit is humble. You are meant to be yoked to me. And when you're yoked to me, the struggles of life will be overcome because my strength will work through you and you will find your strength in me. With the Lord, because he's gentle and humble of heart, you can be transparent. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to suck it up and be pious when you're around Christian people. You can just be yourself. And you can be vulnerable. You can admit your struggles to the Lord. You don't have to cover up. You don't have to pretend. Think about the interaction he had with people as he walked the face of the earth. They once threw a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery down at his feet and said, what does the law demand concerning this woman? And Jesus said, well, if you're so perfect, you, you throw the first stone. You want a stoner? Go ahead. If you're perfect, throw the stone. And no one could do that. They all dropped their stones and walked away. This woman was an outcast, a moral failure. And Jesus was gracious to him, to her, gentle and humble of heart. He said, no one is left to condemn you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. You know, stop this behavior that is creating a problem in your life and a problem in society. Not because it makes you more acceptable to me, because it makes your life better. That's the understanding of his expectations. Or Matthew, the tax collector. You know, who would choose a tax collector to be his disciple? And yet Jesus chose Matthew. And so what did Matthew do? He threw a party for all the tax collectors. They were party people. And they were having a raucous time. And Jesus was right in there with them. And the legalist came and said, how how can he be a religious leader if he he associates with people like this, like Matthew? And Jesus said, who do you think needs me more? You know, people like this especially need me. They need to understand, you know, how this is shallow and doesn't provide the purpose that God intended for their life. Or how many times did Jesus reach out to lepers? Untouchable people, people who were beyond all hope, people that even their families had given up on. Jesus gave up on no one. And he received them and healed them and touched them. Or the blind man, even the disciples said to the blind man, you know, he was calling out, master, master, have mercy on me. 
And the disciples says, don't bother the master, he's too busy. Or the parents who want to bring their children, don't bother the master, he's too busy. The unnoticed, the unimportant. Jesus says, you know, bring him to me. And he healed him. And it's not just the needy people. You may not be needy, but you still need the Lord. Educated people like Nicodemus, who was at the top of the food chain, and yet understood that something was lacking in his life. And when he saw Jesus, he just knew that there was something about this guy that, that I need for myself. Jesus didn't say, get out of here. You know, you're educated. You have everything you need. I don't have time for you. He took time for that man. And he said, I, I know that you still have a hunger. You still have a thirst that's not being met by your own personal achievement. Or Zacchaeus, who was rich, but lonely. <laughs> rich people can be some of the loneliest people you'll ever find. He said, Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree. I'm going to eat at your house today. Zacchaeus said, what? You're going to spend time with me? Everybody thinks I'm greedy. No one has time for me. They think I have it made. But he was alone. And Jesus authenticated him and received him. So which are you? Are you the outcast? The moral failure? Are you the party guy or the party gal who realized that that life is, is not long, that, that life is shallow, it doesn't satisfy. Are you beyond all hope, you know, with, with no future? Are you the unnoticed person, the educated but proud person, the rich but lonely person? Which are you? Jesus says, come to me. You need to be yoked to me so that you can find your purpose and you can find your strength to overcome the struggles and the burdens of your life. Walk with me and let me walk with you. Well, what does it mean to walk with Jesus? You have to come back. I can't, I can't preach the whole counsel of God today. You know, it's, it's what we do every week here. Uh, my only task today was to help you understand that the Lord is inviting you, that it's not all on you, that he wants to walk with you. He wants to give you the strength and, and, and he wants to be yoked with you uh, to give you the power to overcome. Now, I know you say, that's what I want to do. That, you know, I'm all in. I, I want that rest. I'm coming, Jesus. I'm weary and I'm burdened. But are you really willing to give up control? Are you? I heard on the radio this past week a story about uh, silly things that couples argue about. And here's an example of unwillingness to give up control. Your wife or your husband says to you, where would you like to eat tonight? You know, I chose last time, you choose. And, uh, and so you say, how about Chipotle? And she says, well, Chipotle, it's a little spicy. Uh, maybe not Chipotle. You say, well, how about Pasta House? You say, well, uh, Pasta House has a lot of carbs. You say, well, why don't you choose then? No, I chose last time. You choose. <laughs> so, well, how about, how about Five Guys then? Well, you know, it's a little greasy. I don't, do we, <laughs> well, you choose. No, I chose last time. You choose. Say, well, how about I just get Chinese? We do carry out. You say, well, it's a lot of MSG in Chinese food, you know. I, <laughs> you choose. <laughs> <laughs> you know, are you really willing to let the Lord, are you really willing to give up control? Are you really willing to trust that he will give you rest, that yoked with him, you'll find a strength that you don't have right now? One thing I know about promises is they have no power if you don't act on them. They don't. Years ago when I was a, a pastor down the Gulf Coast of Texas, Port Arthur, Texas, I was actually pastoring in a neighboring community 
and my church didn't have a school, but uh, Port Arthur was kind of an inner city school, and, and uh, they had a Christian school. I wanted my kid in an inner city school, uh, in a Christian school, so I had him enrolled there, and, and as a result, because our church was supportive, they asked me occasionally to bring chapel. And so I spoke at the kids' chapel one day, and my son was there, and so I asked all the teachers to put all the children's names at a hat, and I would draw a name out of a hat, and I was going to give them a surprise. And so they were all excited. They came into the, into the chapel that day, and, and so I drew a name out of a hat, and the, and the kid came forward, and I wrote that kid a $10 check, and I gave it to him, and I was talking about promises, because this was just a promise. You had to act on the promise for it to be real. I continued to pastor there two or three years after that. And every time we balanced the checkbook, it was $10 off. Kid never cashed the check. I was good for the money. But not if he didn't believe it. You know, God's promises are good for you. But not if you don't accept them. They're still true. They're just not true for you. Amen. I'm going to ask you to rise and join with me in the Lord's Prayer. I said I didn't have time to teach the whole counsel of God. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but in this prayer, every time I pray it, I realize just how superficial I am in my prayer life because this is a teaching prayer. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he said, when you pray, here's some things you should pray about. And he gave them a list. And I think these are not often on my top 10 things to pray about, but they ought to be. And so today, as you pray through them, think about what God would have you focus on and what priorities you ought to have in life. We pray together. Our Father, the one in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.